there's no better adventure out there than working together to save the planet. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that will earn that great honour in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land, land that was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We acknowledge that we cannot hope to have climate justice until we have justice for First Nations Australians. We have so much to learn from the ancient wisdom that they honed from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before their land was stolen. Though I may be the Mayor of Geelong, but first and foremost, I'm a resident. And the first thing I saw here and I heard here was the, the, the passion, the commitment, the involvement of the community. What they have in this project is real. Because the stakes are real. This affects people's lives, how residents can live, how we can you know, have affordable housing, how we can get employment, how we can afford the cost of living, how, how we can have meaningful connections with our care model. These are things that are important to everybody's lives, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from. And it's having everybody in the one room, which is vitally important, and that's what's been achieved here. Yeah. having everyone together in one room with the same passion for the outcomes. And that's where we have this launching platform where I'm actually going to expect that we see real results out of this. And that is not something you can say about every single forum. A glimpse from last week when Geelong Mayor Trent Sullivan was really, as you could hear, he was pleased and excited even uh, and showed strong support of the Real Deal Geelong project which uh, launched its big report last week, a report which uh, contained more than 200 interviews with Geelong residents about what they think should happen in the future and how we transition towards a decarbonized society, a climate-safe society. And it was a full hall with 200 people coming together at the Cloverdale Community Center. And as the mayor referred to, not just people, but also politicians. There were four councillors, there were two state MPs. And I think what was so impressive was that everyone got excited and everyone felt that the Real Deal project had something to offer here that will move Geelong ahead. And what's happening now is that those 200 people who were in the room, many of them committed to looking further into how the conclusions of the report can be worked on and how we can take this into that transition that we need to see a better transition to a decarbonized society. Telling a story isn't easy. And we saw the emotion up here on stage as well. So thank you to everybody who participated in that. I myself am still a renter as well. And I spent my youth with my single mother, my two brothers, moving from affordable, what was we could find as affordable rental property to an affordable property. In the end, you know, I remember having times where my bed was a stretcher in a hallway. And in the end, the longer term house we could get was one of a two-bedroom house for my mother and two brothers, as I said. And I'm still running to this day. But there's one thing that I really want to take away from tonight. And it's the momentum that is in this room. Right now you have a community. You have a union. You have a council. You've got the state members of parliament. You have goodwill from the federal government as well. This is what we can use as a platform to launch off, to secure a real deal for Geelong. Because these three, three pillars are incredibly important. 
the housing, work, affordable uh, standards of living and care and connection for all. And that's why I'm here. That's why I see my members from the council here as well. I like to thank my deputy mayor in the back there as well and our members. There's a lot going on here. And this is the platform. This is the time. This is for John to get a real deal. Thank you. I'm going to get a commitment, a confirmation that you will work with us to, to support a real deal for Geelong. Absolutely. The city of Geelong will work to get a real deal for Geelong. Thank you. Thank you. So that's the good local news, I think, uh, from here from Geelong. The big news, which was all over the news last week, was, of course, the federal government announcement, the budget. But for some reason, none of the reporters and the journalists who cover this topic seems to notice that once again in this budget, there is... 9.6 billion dollars put aside to subsidize our fossil fuel industry. And that's the same industry which at the moment is making record profits while they're pushing the climate beyond livable limits. When this sustainable hour here is finished, when you've listened for one hour, Exxon will have made an extra 9.5 million dollars in profit. That's what they do every hour all year round. And that last year added up to 84 billion dollars in profit. Chevron had a record of 55 billion dollars profit. Shell, 60 billion dollars surplus. BP, 42 billion dollars profit. Total Energy, a French company, 54 billion, and so on and so on. Altogether, the fossil fuel industry last year exceeded something like 600 billion dollars in profit. And that's profit from wrecking our climate. And even so, our government seems to think that public money, that's from our pockets, from citizens and organizations, should go to supporting this industry with another $9.6 billion in the coming year, which is $18,250 per minute. So yes, it's good news that Australia now, as it's written in the new budget, has a national net zero authority. But what about the fossil fuel subsidies? Who's talking about them? We can't take serious climate action, I say, unless we begin to simply slash the fossil fuel subsidies. Colin Market, OAM, what's your take on that? And what do you have for us in the global outlook? Well, uh, I have Australia in the global climate uh, roundup this week. And what I take from that is that the fossil fuel industry has by far the majority of the 164 lobbyists who are ever present at the Parliament House in Canberra. They counted them last week. None of them are accountable to the government. They're all the people walking about with orange badges on, and they're all basically appointed by different organisations. The vast majority of them are fossil fuel lobbyists, and that's why our government really throughout time has been answerable to the fossil fuel industry. As America, their government is answerable to uh, the National Rifle Association and the arms people. In Australia, their equivalent is the fossil fuel company. They hold power in parliament. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. I'm talking about the world. So here we go. Our roundup this week begins at the Petersburg Climate Dialogue in Berlin. That's a lead-up meeting to the United Nations Conference of the Parties, the COP that's coming up. At this dialogue, the COP28, which is the next 
conference of the parties, uh, hit the president, Sultan al-Jabbar, who is not only the president of the next COP meeting, he's also the CEO of one of the world's largest oil companies. He called at the dialogue for the long-term use of fossil fuels with unproven technologies to capture their emissions. His views, which are totally at odds with virtually all the leading environmental ministers, not to mention all of science, raised concerns that the world will want to roll back its climate goals at COP28 in the United Arab Emirates late November and early December. We shall watch and see, but just bear in mind that an oil executive is in control of COP28. There's better news from Norway, which has the world's leading take-up of electric vehicles. It's advanced enough for other countries to now go to Norway and study the Norwegian experience to predict how their own rollout of EVs will go. Last year, 80% of new car sales in Norway were electric, putting the country at the vanguard of the shift to battery-powered mobility. It's also turned Norway into a study centre for figuring out what the electric vehicle revolution might mean for the environment, workers and life, and life in general in other countries. And the studies, all of the studies so far, have been positive. Norway's on track to meet its target of ending the sales of internal combustion engine cars by 2025. Norway's experience suggests that electric vehicles bring benefits without the dire consequences that have been predicted by some critics. They've met problems, of course, including unreliable charging points and long waits during periods of high demand. But car dealers, retailers and owners themselves have learned to adapt and get over these. The switch has completely reordered the Norwegian auto industry because now Tesla is the best-selling brand and established car makers that used to be the best sellers, like Renault and Fiat, are left on the margins. But against this, the air in Oslo, which is Norway's capital, is measurably cleaner. The city is also quieter, and Oslo's greenhouse gas emissions have fallen by 30% since 2009. Yet there hasn't been mass unemployment among mechanics and service station workers, and the electrical grid has not collapsed. These are the things that were forecast once the EV um, rollout became established. Some politicians and fossil fuel executives portrayed the fight against climate change as requiring grim sacrifices from motorists. With EVs, it's not like that, said Christiana Boo, who's Secretary General of the Norwegian EV Association, which represents the owners. The change is actually something that people have embraced, she said. Now for new American research, which was released this week, which shows that the fallout emissions from the 2019-2020 Australian fires led to a three-year Super La Nina event that fueled droughts in Africa and hurricanes in the Atlantic. The fallout from those fires that burned across more than 180,000 square kilometres of mostly New South Wales in 2019 and 2020 was so persistent and widespread 
that it brightened a vast area of clouds above the Pacific Ocean. Beneath those clouds, the ocean surface and the atmosphere cooled, shifting a key tropical rainfall belt northwards and nudging the equatorial Pacific towards an unexpected and long-lasting cool phase of the La Nina and El Nina cycle. That's according to research that was published last week in the American magazine Science Advances. The fallouts are basically fire dust, microscopic bits of charred mineral and organic matter that can ride superheated fire clouds up into the stratosphere and spread across hemispheres with a variety of climatic events, depending on where they're produced and where they end up. In the new modeling study, the scientists quantified how fallouts from the Australian fires made the clouds over the Pacific reflect more sunlight back towards space. Combined, the effects are reckoned to have helped trigger a rare three-year La Nina from late 2019 through to 2022. The impacts of the La Nina rippled around the world, intensifying drought and famine in East Africa and priming the Atlantic Ocean region for hurricanes. 2020 became the most active tropical storm season on record, with 31 tropical and subtropical systems, including 11 storms that made landfall in the US, including four alone in Louisiana. The findings highlight widespread multi-year climate impacts caused by an unprecedented wildfire season, said lead author John Fasulo, who's a scientist with the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. And just to nail the subject, another study released at the weekend found that fast-forming droughts are happening more and more quickly in many areas around the world, all of them are rated due to climate change. Flash droughts are now happening more frequently in 74% of the planet, excluding the two poles due to less rain, warmer temperatures and more intense heat waves. And finally, to the US, to slash their state's air pollution and cut carbon emissions, Californian air regulators will require all medium and heavy-duty trucks to be zero emission by 2036. That's reportedly the first place in the world to do so. The state also passed a first-of-its-kind rule for, for the US to phase out emissions from passenger and freight trains. Even so, I'm guessing that Norway is going to get there first. But either way... That's my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Okay, our first guest today is Paul Oosting. Paul is currently involved in the intersection of climate and finance. But this is on the back of his being or helping get get up that amazing organisation of that's empowered many, many, well, tens of thousands of Australians to become active on the climate front. So, Paul, thanks for coming on and tell us about what's up front for you at the moment. 
Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be here and great to connect with all the people listening in on this podcast, wherever you are. And I want to acknowledge that I'm also working on the land of the Eora Nation people here in Sydney and, and work across that, that area. So pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging activists. Um, for, for me, my, my story begins in terms of creating social and environmental change back in sort of 2004. And so I wanted to ask, you know, your listeners to, to, to sort of come with me on a bit of a journey back in time. And as, as you may real remember, we had Prime Minister John Howard in power back then, and it was the lead up to an election where Mark Latham was standing in the opposition to become the next Prime Minister. And there was a hotly contested election. And I was in my last year of studying uh, postgraduate environmental planning and had had an inspiring lecturer, um, Dr. Peter Hay, who's um, who's many things, but including uh, an environmental philosopher who really challenged me to think more broadly around the systemic challenges facing the earth. And you know, one of the right readings that really struck with me was that every major ecological indicator was in decline. Whether we think about our soil whether we think about the water and, of course, the topic we're discussing here, climate change. And and I, I was really questioning where I would go with my work, you know, with my life, with my career as I was finishing up my studies and, and felt like I needed to be at that sort of intersection of really doing work that could somehow contribute towards um, contributing to addressing those major challenges that the earth is facing. And in the context of Tasmania, 2004 this hotly contested election uh, mark latham went to the election saying that if elected he would save tasmania's forests and it would all be resolved and and as we know he infamously spectacularly lost the election um he we saw a historic move for the first time i think in history and probably hasn't happened since that the union backed the conservatives the cfmeu stood on stage with john howard and and backed him in and uh, he, he went to the election saying that he of course wouldn't save tasmania's forests and then th that was the context in which i entered the world of campaigning and social change and and so a few weeks later the the, the biggest logging company and one of the biggest logging companies in the southern hemisphere and certainly in australia guns limited announced plans that they would build a pulp mill in tasmania and double the rate of logging and uh you know with that strong political backing they had across every jurisdiction they would you know forge ahead to expand logging and um, getting rid of tasmania's ancient forests and so things seemed pretty dire a few days later not coincidentally they also announced that they were going to sue all the leading activists um everyone from the wilderness society itself and and their staff through to leading politicians bob brown and christine Milne faced what was seen then as a strategic litigation against public participation so whilst emboldened to a degree i guess um people like bob brown and christine Milne and, and perhaps even the wilderness society it sent shockwaves through activism and the community people were fearful of standing up raising their voice um, many people thought that they might lose their homes or become bankrupt if they continue to engage in forest activism and so the approach that um, I, I went in and volunteered for the Wilderness Society, I, I wanted to get involved in this space. I wanted to work out how to create social and environmental change. So I rocked into the Wilderness Society and said, you know, I'm going to volunteer for up to 
six to eight months, I think I offered um, full time as a volunteer to help design a campaign to stop guns proposed pulp mill. And, and the thinking at that time led, led by um, Alec Ma and others was, well, we're not going to win politically. We've emphatically demonstrably lost. There's no political pathway to success. And there was a bit of thinking that, well, the only way we're going to win here is when the logging industry is supportive of the change. And, and that wasn't just like we've heard with the fossil fuel sector going to be a conflict, conflict three pathway. There was no convincing them of a better pathway or, or simply putting up a different proposal. Um, we had to at the same time stop this pulp mill being built and, and, in parallel, demonstrate that actually there, there was a transition that could be achieved. And so my first sort of uh, period of campaigning was working to stop that pulp mill. First of all, we took on the ANZ Bank and some of your listeners may recall that campaign. We, we worked hard to make sure that guns owned banker wouldn't fund this $2 billion pulp mill. We worked, you know, on the streets, mobilizing people out the front of their branches. Uh, at the time, people said, it was a ludicrous idea that, of course, a bank would never consider an environmental issue um, or a social issue in making a decision. Um, we mobilised uh, behind the scenes as well, trying to engage their staff because ultimately, you know, a bank is really a conglomerate of people who are, you know, turning up for work, tens of thousands of them to to make the decisions on a daily basis as to, you know, what they want to fund or how they want to run their organisation. And we successfully convinced the ANZ Bank not to fund the pulp mill and then from there we went global um, in terms of it became a bit of a wild goose chase of tracking guns around the world as they tried to secure finance first with australian banks and then china um, across europe to convince their investors that they shouldn't fund this project uh, and then at the same time we had to convince the institutional investors the owners of guns the, those big shareholders that actually what guns pro was proposing was not the right way forward, that taking this pathway of conflict with the community, of suing people and of destroying the natural environment actually wasn't in their best interests longer term in terms of creating a viable product for shareholders. And that took that was difficult work. Um, back then, ESG, which is an acronym that gets thrown around a lot now, didn't even exist actually. Um, environmental, social and government governance issues weren't taken seriously. So it was took a lot of work to make the case um, and providing that financial and, and analysis and bringing together environmental issues that what the logging industry was proposing wasn't going to be viable. Um, and really, it took a major crisis point for guns as the logging company itself and the building up of them not being able to get that finance for its future for the pulp mill alongside shifts in the international markets, particularly in Japan, that it's finally institutional investors were really putting pressure back onto guns and saying, right, you need to change your approach here. Um, and in 2010, we, we were able to sit down and negotiate and uh, sort of map out a ref major reform for the logging industry, which resulted in about 500,000 hectares of Tasmania's ancient forests being protected and um, the government intervening to provide funding for the logging industry and regional Tasmania, really, a lot of the money went to other industries more so than logging in, in, in actual fact, tourism, high-end agriculture and so forth to reform the industry. Um, and now, um, casting forward from, from the, that uh, big political intervention and the impact that was achieved through consumer action and shareholder action 
through public mobilization. The ANU recently released a study um, where Professor David Lindenmeyer from the ANU released a paper saying that they believe that Tasmania has become one of the first jurisdictions in the world to become carbon negative. That is that those forests and the carbon store in those old cold forests where there's huge depths of meters and meters of natural carbon stored in the forests has now allowed Tasmania to become one of the first carbon negative places in the world. That is, it's not just carbon neutral, it's actually um, ahead of the game in storing carbon, which is obviously something we need to address as we think about how to stop further emissions going into the atmosphere, but then how to draw it down, drawing on natural sciences and, and how nature can actually be the best store there. So, Paul, uh, I'm really curious, with all that experience that you have in in this working with, with us, the community, the social mobilization, it appears to me that everyone is waiting for something at the moment. We human beings, we often do, you know, what the others are doing. If everyone else has an electric car, I, I better get one too. If everyone has solar panels, I'll get solar panels too, and so on. We look around and, and see what's going on, and at the moment... When it comes to taking action on climate, if you're honest, uh, think about what you did last week. Which action did you do last week that was actually where you had consciously in mind that I'm going to do this for the climate? Hmm. Not much. So, so the big question here is how do we get to that tipping point where we all begin to feel that we are doing this together? Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's that's really what I'm focusing my mind on now are the, the wider ways in which we all have power. We have our voice, which is which is huge, signing petitions, contacting our members of parliament, using our reputation, our reach into the media, into our friend circles. We have our time, we can volunteer, um, and we also have you know financial resources. We have money, we have savings, we have debt, we have a range of things like this. And so for me, even when I reflect on last week's budget, and we talk of um, the billions of dollars that are subsidizing fossil fuels and we talk, talk about the smaller amount of money, the less billions of dollars that are now going into addressing climate change. What, one of the things that looking at those numbers I reflect on is the literally trillions of dollars that Australians, individuals like you, me and your listeners are sitting on in terms of our superannuation. Um, this is literally trillions and trillions of dollars. And if we think about that, I think it's worth to pause and think through, well, what does a trillion dollars mean? Uh, bear with me on this metaphor, but if we think about, think about it in terms of time, think about one second. So how long is a million seconds? Well, it's roughly 12 days. How long is a billion seconds? Well, it's roughly 31 years. How long is a trillion seconds? It's roughly 31,000 years. So when we talk about trillions of dollars that are sitting at the fingertips of Australians, there's a huge amount of mobilization there, huge amount of power that's largely at the moment being unrealized. And so, and I think the same is true in banking, the same is true with our, um, the choice of the energy companies in terms of our home electrification, whether we're, you know, got solar or not. And so for me, that's something, and I believe now that people are fully aware that we need to act on climate change, at least, at least, you know, three quarters, the vast majority of Australians. And, and of course, legislation and regulation is a way to create systemic change that can um, be lasting. 
But at the same time, what I'm excited about is, is that the potential there to really escalate the change we need, the capital flows into carbon solutions, the, um, the wider solutions to make renewable energy cheaper for, for, you know, climate tech to be totally accessible across the world, um, across Africa and so forth. We need the production of renewable energy to, to be far, far cheaper than it is at the moment. It's absolutely not accessible with where we stand today. So we need a massive investment into innovation, into scale, into commercialization. And that's something that I think that Australians can really drive. We understand climate change now and the threat it poses. We've all experienced that personally. I think almost all of your listeners would know somebody either themselves or a friend of a friend impacted by um, bushfires, drought, extreme weather events. And we have these resources sitting at our, at our fingertips. And so for me, in terms, when I look at the climate science and I look at the, the short time period we have left to address change, we need both. We need to be mobilising politically, but we also need to be mobilising collectively um, through those resources we have in our lives and finding ways to mobilise those to create change. Paul, I would love to have your comment on an event that we are organising here in Geelong in a week where we have invited a corporate lawyer who, who's got this idea. He's saying that we need to change just 11 words in the corporate law, 11 words that needs to be added. Because at the moment, Section 181 of the corporate law is saying the director works in the best interest of, of the corporation or the, the company and the shareholders. And, and so what he's suggesting is that we just have to add 11 words, not at the expense of severe damage to the environment. Mm. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think this this is a really necessary step. The as I mentioned, it's been a, a slow but necessary journey, and I think we're in a good place in terms of the corporate sector understanding environmental, social, and governance issues. That these are both important for a livable planet, but also do relate to the viability of their companies. Um, if investors in that guns case study that I raised had have listened to both the, the data and the community sooner, they would have been $2.6 billion better off. Instead, they left it so late that the company collapsed and the transition couldn't occur was the sort of the full stop on that, that story. And the same is the case now that we need to be building into our laws um, and creating that, that, that very clear regulation that it can enable investors, banks, energy companies, superannuation funds to be properly addressing climate change. At the moment, it's still contested. If you look to the US, it's a very sad situation there at the moment that's playing out where um, Republican states are now trying to ban ESG, trying to stop um, the financial institutions from factoring in environmental, social and governance issues because they argue that it's not in shareholders' best interest, actually, that they should only be focused on profit, solely on profit. So, yeah, it's important we get this right. It's it's heartening to see now that ASIC, our market regulator, is starting to look at the issue of greenwashing because it's clearly so prevalent. It's a major problem. And, and whilst they've been off to a slow start, it's good to see that's now happening. But again, to me, where the power lies is with the people, um, us consumers, us voters, um, more so than with ASIC or an individual fund. We're, we're the one that own those stocks. We have that, those trillions of dollars are ours. And at the moment, we're not, we're not mobilizing it. We're not engaging with those funds. And so it is left to the lowest common denominator. You know, ASIC has to get out there and deal with people who are overtly lying about the fact they're investing in climate solutions and engaging in greenwashing. We need to flip that equation. We need to say, well, we value this. We believe that actually investing in climate change can be profitable. So I can still get a, a great retirement for 
me and my family, but also it's the in the best interest of my fund overall. So to me, you know, finding ways to bring that transparency to um, the light is going to be driven by people. It's um, you know, the, to me, it's the the wisdom of crowds is something we we can easily lose lose sight of, um, and mm. that was absolutely the case with the logging industry in Australia. People could see this was a bad trajectory, um, and we're raising that with the companies. And at that stage, people didn't even have the language to engage with it. As I say, ESG didn't even exist. Um, you know, there weren't environmental or climate change experts within the financial institutions. There are now, so things are getting getting better, but there aren't those those clear market signals. Um, there's still a lot of people in the finance sector might say, well, the demand's just not there or, um, yes, we can do more, but um, it's going to be a slow change and we'll wait to see what the regulator does. Um, I think we need to change that equation so it's being driven from the bottom up by the individual owners, um, you know, the, the tens of millions of Australians who have their super with those companies, um, getting engaged with their banks, getting engaged with their energy company and, um, you know, switching to alternatives if they aren't finding the right answers that, that, that they're looking for. So in short, what you're saying is the finger is pointing at us. We can't sit and wait for leaders to decide for us where we will go. No, it boils down to each and every one of us. That's right. And I think it's worth considering how we do this collectively, how we open up this process, because, you know, what I'm not suggesting is, you know, let's retreat and think about our own consumer choices. Um, that's not entirely a bad thing, but, but it can be limiting. And, uh, and I hear those critiques. I think this can be done in a way that opens up transparency, uh, that where people can mobilize their capital, their voice and use their time effectively to really scale up social change. And I think we've seen that on a range of range of issues across Australia, whether it's been um, the marriage equality debates, whether it's been challenging offshore detention, whether it's been challenging individual projects like coal mines or reforming you know, aspects of the logging industry. Obviously, there's still some big challenges there with logging in Australia. So yeah, I, I remain optimistic and I think we are at a tipping point. Um, when I look at the data released by the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, they now say that around three quarters, around 75% of Australians expect their bank and super fund to be climate, climate friendly, to be acting on those issues. The reality at the moment is there's a big intention and action gap. So in fact, it would be in the small percentages, probably not even the double digits of people that are with a climate friendly bank. But I, remember, I look at those numbers and I'm, I'm optimistic because I don't think it's where we were 10 or 15 years ago. I don't think most Australians were thinking, geez, I expect my bank to be climate friendly, but they are now. So the next step is how do we mobilise each other? Um, that's not that's not going to be top down or directed by necessarily organisations or, or political leaders. That's going to be driven from the grassroots up. Mm. It's not only the, um, the fossil fuel companies that have made a fortune out of the war in Ukraine. It's also the combination of the war and COVID has meant that our banks are lashing with money at the moment. They've got buckets of it. They're making record profits alongside the fossil fuel companies. So, of course, that's a, a relevant target for you to take up. You're somebody who is very close to the politics of the things and the finance of the things you've been studying the uh, fight for the planet for more than a decade, as you pointed out. I know very little about the subsidies to fossil fuel companies. Um, it, it's come up a couple of times in today's where both you and Mick were talking about it. I was on the understanding that the majority of the sub subsidies to fossil fuel companies 
don't physically go to the fossil fuel companies. They'll go to farmers and other industries who get their diesel fuels subsidised by the government in order to keep their businesses relevant. Am I wrong there? Or do we actually give money directly to the fossil fuel companies? Yeah, look, we absolutely do. And there's there's a few examples that spring to, to mind. And, um, uh, you know, I'm not, not the expert on this exact topic. So there's a range of organisations that the Australia Institute, the Climate Council and others, if people want to read a bit further. But I'll give you a couple of examples that come to mind. Um, things like subsidies for diesel fuel. This is something where you can get in there and have a you know really detailed look. Um, put on your actuarial hat and look at the amount of money that's going to those fossil fuel companies where the government are subsidising the fuel for the mining trucks and other operations. Um, and so that's a direct subsidy coming off their bottom line. And interestingly now, as as um, his companies and he's going through the, the, the transition, you see people like uh, Twiggy, who's out there saying, Andrew Forrest, who's, who's saying that those subsidies absolutely are not warranted and that they should be withdrawn by the government. So we have, you know, billions of dollars there in fuel that the government, us again, us taxpayers, ultimately that's our, that's our, our money, um, are going to the fossil fuel sector. Um, there's other examples like tax loopholes that are exploited as well. So um, if you look at comp- a company like a multinational like Chevron operating in Australia, certainly a few years ago, I looked at the data there and the average nurse was paying more in tax than Chevron. So so this is again us um, foregoing uh, income and allowing them to have a subsidy, not paying tax in that case, uh, in order to operate in Australia. And the similar dynamics playing out at the moment around the gas sector, of course, as well. So, so yeah, we have there's a range of complex issues at play there, but it's still absolutely the case that we're putting more government money into the fossil fuel sector than we really are in relation to um, addressing climate solutions. So, you know, we've really got to restore that balance quickly. It's worth noting here that not the majority, but all of the fossil fuel companies are offshore in Australia. Hmm. They are foreign companies that are making billions daily in profits and we're giving them money we're helping them out as if they needed extra money from our taxpayers funds it's common knowledge so why aren't people shouting it from the rooftops it's it's a good question and i think increasingly they are and that that's why i think one of the questions for me is well why are the politicians responding and um, I, I, that's why I'm an advocate, I guess, as I've experienced with, you know, the logging issue, with um, challenging the companies behind offshore detention and a range of other issues is also looking at those other enabling factors like our money that's flowing into backing in that sector because sometimes politicians are unwilling to do the hard work to challenge an industry and we've seen that time and time again. So I think we, we need to heighten those voices for pressure to remove things like fossil fuel subsidies. But at the same time, we need to make sure that the capital is being withdrawn and the social license is being withdrawn from those other super funds, banks and others that are enabling um, that structure to remain in place. Thousands of students across Australia will join millions around the world striking for action. We are the voices of nature. The sea slowly rising, we're slowly dying underneath the red hot sun.
situation, I want the fastest solution possible. For example, if my bow tie spontaneously bursts into flames, <laughs> I say put it out, fast. And you know what? We're all in a bad situation right now. It's called climate change. Record-setting droughts, wildfires, heat waves, rising seas, and withering farm production are already causing chaos. What I'm saying here, folks, is that our bow tie is on fire. We need to slow increases in warming as fast as possible. Look, there's no doubt about it. We need to cut carbon dioxide emissions as fast as possible. But as we continue to work toward those solutions, did you know there's something else we can do right now to jumpstart our fight against a warming climate? You see, we can start tackling this bad situation by taking a close look at CO2's destructive accomplice. Another devious, sneaky, and insidious greenhouse gas called... Drum roll, please. Methane, the greenhouse gas that traps a lot of heat in the short term, which accelerates warming. It's like pouring gas onto a fire, making it burn hotter and faster. But there, right there is where we have a huge opportunity. Because if methane is trapping a lot of heat in the short term, reducing methane emissions means we can make a lot of progress in the short term as well. So how do we reduce methane emissions? Well, we know they come from three major sources. Energy, like leaky oil and gas pipes used in fossil fuel production. Waste, such as food rotting away in landfills. And agriculture, specifically the burps and to a lesser extent, the farts from millions of cows and pigs. <clears throat> But our theme today is speed, and one of the quickest ways to mitigate methane emissions is by tackling those oil and gas leaks. I'm talking about repairing joints, tightening valves, and replacing gaskets. It's not rocket science, it's plumbing science. 
So why don't we just stop the leaks? Well, did I mention that, like burps and farts, this gas is also invisible? Think of it this way. It's like walking into your garage or basement and finding a huge puddle of water on the floor. You're upset because finding the puddle is easy. But finding the leaks, that's the hard part. Luckily, there's hope. As usual, scientists and engineers have a solution. Now we have a satellite that can see and even measure methane pollution from space, called MethaneSat. <laughs> we came up with that name ourselves. Which will be able to help find methane leaks, big and small, anywhere on Earth. From space, the data from MethaneSat will help hold polluters accountable. That will help drive methane emissions down. So let's reduce methane emissions, people. With MethaneSat in space, together we can continue to learn, take smarter actions, and dare I say it, save the world. Our next guest is Tammy Jonas. Uh, Tammy is president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. So welcome, Tammy. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Tell us what you're, what you're up to at the moment. Tammy, please. Oh, you wouldn't want to know what I'm up to specifically at the moment. It's quite a lot. Okay. <laughs> um, no, the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, though, I guess, uh, you know, we've been advocating for everybody's right to nutritious and uh, culturally appropriate food that's grown and distributed in ethical, socially just and ecologically sound ways and our right to participate in the food system for about 12 years now. And the we've got several major pieces of work on the way. One is um, an updated people's food plan. So our, our founding document was a people's food plan that was released in 2013. And this is the first major update of it in a decade. And it builds on 10 years of policy submissions and listening to members' concerns about what's wrong with the food system. We It's interesting listening to climate conversations like this. So our theory of change involves a lot of fighting for more than against. Um, we are so glad that people are fighting against all of the, the horrible things in industrial society. Uh, but we, we're all volunteers in this organization and we put most of our energy into fighting for what we see as a better future for everyone, where agroecological food production is the norm, localized food economies are the norm, everybody has access to healthy and whole food um, produced near them. It's just a completely different vision for how the world should be than how it is for most Australians living in cities. You know, just 89% of our population lives in cities in this country. So um, we'd like to see food production closer to the people who are eating it and with them having a say in how it's produced, by whom, um, and and who it's sold to. Just in the climate movement that I move in, I guess, there's lots of conflict around meat eating versus non-meat eating. What's your, because I understand you, the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance caters for both? Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely, and we do. And I'm, I myself am a small-scale uh, pastured heritage breed pig and cattle farmer on the unceded lands of the Jajawurrung here, and I'd also like to pay my respect to elders and ancestors um, and to any First Peoples listening in today. Um, we believe, we, we obviously, we believe that eating meat is a, is a culturally appropriate and uh, delicious part of our society, but we also think that there is too much meat production in industrial systems. And we think that it's done in very bad ways. And the emissions from a lot of that are of concern, obviously. Um, 
if you, I'm sure you understand the difference between the short carbon cycle and the fossil carbon cycle. And one of the things that concerns us is the expectation that farmers, livestock or otherwise, can sequester enough carbon to deal with the extractive industries of mining. You know, we can't, we, we literally can't draw down as much carbon as they're bringing out from, you know, from mining. So we try to talk about that in more nuanced ways, I guess. We, we want our own systems to be in balance. We don't want to be net emitters just because we have livestock. And so a focus on small scale farms like my own is, you know, caring for the trees and grasslands that were already here and planting more of those things. And also ourselves trying not to be reliant on fossil fuels, whether it's by running all of our irrigation equipment on solar instead of diesel. Um, we run one of our trucks actually on uh, waste veggie oil from the local cafes. Um, we try to, every, our house and our farm, everything's on solar actually. So trying to do things where the farms themselves are in balance and not net emitters is a huge goal for the food sovereignty movement. And for you, that I understand that includes setting up a, an abattoir on your farm? Yes, we are personally in the process of setting up a little collective micro abattoir that will be able to service about 15 local farms here in, in the region that we're in. Um, it's a tiny facility and that's, um, you know, you talk about CO2. One of the uh, things that came up in the news recently is the use of CO2 stunning for pigs and people will have seen this on the 730 report. We've long held concerns about CO2 stunning. The, the industry claims that it's best practice. When we first started using an abattoir using CO2 stunning, to be fair, we believed them when they said it was best practice because it sounds nice. You gas the animals and they go to sleep, right? But of course, when you start doing the research, you find that that's not true, that there's up to about 20 seconds of um, not it's not always suffering, to be fair. Sometimes the loss of consciousness is quite quick. And although it's an aversive gas, um, they might go to sleep in five to 10 seconds, but that's not a good five to 10 seconds. It feels like you're lacking oxygen, like you can't breathe. So unlike the other methods of stunning, um, CO2 stunning actually prolongs the, the so-called stun. So we've been advocating against it. Um, the research is not being done to find other gas methods Really. And I think the reason is because the industry, as you know, has never put animal welfare top of their list and including at the moment of slaughter. And they're trying to keep throughput. You know, they're just trying to kill as many animals as they can as quickly as they can. So we, we want to build an abattoir that runs at, you know, human scale and kind of a scale where every animal is treated individually and is treated well at the moment of death, just as it has been for its whole life. And we don't want to put animals on trailers and transport them to those distant abattoirs, which are bizarrely on the edge of cities as well. You know, why why do we take animals from farms to cities to kill them? It's it's a terrible system. I was under the impression that pigs were stunned electronically. Uh, how long have they been stunning them by gassing them with CO2? For like at least 20, if not 30 years. Oh. Uh, it's only in the really small regional abattoirs that they're still using electric or captive bolt stunning. Um, and, and like I said, it's a throughput issue. They, If you build the chamber, you can put anywhere from two to 12 pigs in what's called a gondola in a very nice sort of euphemism. Uh, and they're lowered into the carbon dioxide chamber en masse. And that's the norm. I think it's over 85% of slaughter of pigs in Australia is done by CO2 stunning. 
Either way, I think we've just converted a few more people to vegetarianism. <laughs> well, that's not a bad thing for the planet. So, <laughs> you know, if we all ate better meat less, uh, we wouldn't be in the position we're in, really. But then you would have great difficulty uh, unless you started growing soy or something instead of your pigs. You've got pigs, have you? Yeah, we did pigs and cattle. And now we we actually, I mean, our own farm website says eat better meat less. We we advocate for people to reduce meat consumption because we don't think you need to eradicate meat from the system. We just need to stop growing them, you know, in at such volume, such um, there are too many animals being grown for meat on the planet by the global north specifically, although it's growing in the global south as well. And pigs and poultry were never grown at scale until they put them in sheds. Mm. So it was always a smaller consumption um, of those. And it was backyards, you know, where you were growing those things. So when we started putting all the animals in sheds and putting them through huge abattoirs, we, you know, we created a whole new problem, not only for the environment, but for our, our kind of moral well-being i think yeah are your pigs in sheds no 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 they're all beautiful green pastures yeah and yeah yeah. i would never i can't stand i was a vegetarian for a decade before we became farmers because i can't stand the mistreatment of animals look um we had paul speaking earlier as you know and he was very much uh what, what can we say focused on using the financial to to get his climate goals. How does your farm, which strikes me as being environmentally and responsible, ethnically responsible, how does it match up financially to other farms which do put their pigs in sheds and don't have the care that you do? Well, as a as a staunchly anti-capitalist sort of farm, I mean, we approach the question of, of values pretty differently to a lot of the uh, the folks keeping their pigs in sheds. And so while we do make an honest and right livelihood here and uh, we don't want for anything, um, we're not seeking to, you know, earn more surplus from extraction from this land or the animals. And so we also, we, we're in a rent-free land sharing agreement actually with some market gardeners who've moved in here in the last six months because they're young and, and emerging, uh, they're First Nations and settler gardener, uh, market gardeners. They couldn't afford land and they can't afford some of the leases people want to charge them as well. And we think that's just rentier capitalism. So we said, well, there's a part of this land that you could be the custodians for and uh, they're now living and farming here with us. So we obviously have enough because we can share some. And I actually think that quite a lot of people have enough if they just have a big old think about it and that they could share some more, um, especially some of the wealthier financiers, you know, you were talking about earlier, Paul, like there's so many people who have enough and could share, and then we would all have enough. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. I think this goes back to the need to make sure that's integrated in our the transparency we apply to companies and making sure there's ways we can see that impact that's occurring because at the moment not having that transparency is allowing them to get away with a lot of greenwashing and not making the moves on climate action that we're all expecting so it's um you know great to hear Tammy's example it's very inspiring absolutely transparency is key and it's very much a cooperative effort, the Alliance. How's it going in terms of, of numbers and, uh, you know, more people getting on board? 
Yeah, so we have several hundred members, like signed up, paid up members, which is our uh, has historically been our main source of funding. But that tells you, I mean, we're, we run on a very small budget and we employ one person now, thanks to um, a grant from Sustainable Table, we're able, we've just been able to take Jess, our general coordinator, to three days a week from two. And so she's doing things like really managing the administration of the updating of the people's food plan and managing all of our um, consultation sessions. And she does a heap of the research and writing as well. But really, we don't we don't need a lot of money because we have a lot of humans uh, who who do a lot of work. And so the rest of us, we have a committee of, of nine um, and the broader membership attends our regular solidarity sessions online and gives us input into which bits of policy need jigging to actually enable this agroecological transition we're working towards. So we have, you know, we have a pretty, we provide legal support to our members as well with pro bono um, law firm, actually. So we have a lot of people applying their energies without needing to be paid for it because, again, we're pretty staunchly anti-capitalist. <laughs> and what's the name of your farm, Tammy? We're John I Farms and Meat Smiths, yeah. People might have seen us on um, the 730 report actually recently and also Four Corners talking about JBS, the biggest meatpacker in the world, taking over our abattoir. We're fairly vocal about our concerns about the system. So we yes. do that fighting against in those kind of public spaces, but our policy work is mostly fighting for. And is there connections with the regenerative farming movement? Because that seems to be an area that's growing. Yeah, there are definitely, and heaps of our members identify as regenerative. We've actually just put out an infographic explaining our position about the difference between regen, ag, and agroecology. And like just in in very brief, um, agroecology is a 30-year-old movement of that came from the global south, indigenous peoples and peasants. So smallholders produce 70% of the world's food, and they're leading the agroecology movement and the food sovereignty movement all around the world. And we're very engaged with that movement and spend a lot of time with our comrades around the world in these in UN meetings and advocating for smallholders. Um, Regen Ag is a movement that's come from the Anglophone Global North and is not in any way expressing itself as an anti-capitalist movement. And it's not also expressing itself um, as it advocates for ecological restoration, but it doesn't really advocate for economic and social and political justice. And so we're asking people who identify with Regen Ag have a big think about those things and see whether they can start transforming the regen ag movement to actually express itself in better solidarity and with more justice kind of uh politics or or start calling themselves agroecological and actually join the movement that already exists and be in solidarity with the smallholders of the world a last comment from each of you maybe tammy maybe you first For us, the first action is not only what, not the things you do at home or that voting with your dollar, all of that very individualist kind of stuff. It's about collectivizing. And I think it's stuff that Paul, you know, and GetUp are very good at doing as well. But for us, collectivizing is like sign up to a democratically constituted body that is advocating for the things you want in the world. Because we, if we say they have the money, but we have the numbers, it's not true if the numbers are not actually collectivized. So for me, that's the strongest action. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, plus one to that. I think let's let's remember we're powerful. You're powerful. We, we we live in a very privileged part of the world. We should expect a huge amount from our politicians. We should expect a huge amount from um, all the companies that we do service with, and finding ways to engage that power. Do so jointly, coming together, letting people know 
the moves that you're making in your life and bringing them along with you can create huge groundswells of shifts. It can be a tidal wave of change and and sometimes it's difficult to see that. But I think we're all primed. We want these things to occur. So let, let's go about doing it, eh? Mm. Yeah. Be the power difference. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> let's go about doing it. Let, let's keep on pushing and be the difference. I know the world's gone mad, it's true. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Watching